This morning we will be studying just three verses, or really, I guess, two verses. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 especially, but I will read beginning at verse 30 through to 32. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is God's word. Let us pray and ask for his help as we study it more deeply this morning. God, this is a short passage, but it is a profound passage and an important passage. We pray that you will help us understand its meaning and its import, and that you will help your people, and that you will convict of sin, not only your people, but those who are yet outside of Christ, perhaps especially those who are religiously outside of Christ, claiming to be Christians and yet not being yet true disciples, and that even today would be the day of salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. By way of reminder, one of the themes of John's Gospel is distinguishing between true faith and false faith. At various points throughout John's Gospel, he talks about believing which does not lead to salvation and believing which does. He doesn't always put it in such explicit terms, but if we look, for example, at even this section and fast forward a little bit, we'll get there next week and the week after. But if we fast forward a little bit, these Jews who had believed him in verse 31 and 30 end up in verse 59 picking up stones to throw at Jesus. And so it's clear, this is one example of what John does at various points throughout his gospel. This is one example of believing, which is not really believing, if I might put it that way. And so John is trying to clarify what is it that is true belief? What is true faith in Christ Jesus? What is true discipleship and what is false? That's one of the themes that John touches on repeatedly throughout his gospel. And it is in keeping with this major theme that John includes this section of Jesus' teaching that comprises verses 31 to 59. He's going to examine the profession of faith that these people made in John 8.30. He's going to examine that and try that and in fact prove it false in 31 to 59. In John 8.30, we read that as John, pardon me, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. In John 8, 31 and following, Jesus turns his attention to these new believers. And from and what we have in John 8, 31 and 32, which is all we're looking at this morning. We'll get into the rest later. But in John 8, 31 and 32, what we have is Jesus' description of a true disciple as opposed to a false one. 
And Jesus gives this description in order that these new believers, and again, I say that somewhat facetiously, because they prove themselves actually to be unregenerate, unconverted men. But Jesus gives this description of a true disciple as opposed to a false one in order that these new believers and the rest of his hearers will be better able to distinguish whether true conversion has actually occurred in this case or not. And in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says that a true disciple is marked by two things. First, abiding in Christ's word. And second, being progressively set free from sin by the truth of Christ's word. Our study this morning will simply explore these two marks at greater length. That's all we're really aiming to do. So let's begin with the first. A true disciple will abide in Christ's word. Look at verse 31 of John chapter 8. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The implication is, if you do not abide in my word, you are not really, truly my disciples. This is really abiding in God's word, Christ's word. This is really the distinguishing, the distinguishing feature of a true disciple over a false disciple. A number of years ago, it struck me that the three types of growth in the parable of the sower all look the same at first. Listen to Luke 8, 5 to 8. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. What does the growth from the seed that fell on the rock with no moisture look like at first? What does the growth from the seed that fell among the thorns look like at first? What does the growth from the seed that fell in the good soil look like at first? The seed is the same. In all three locations, the seed is the same. And therefore, the growth that springs up in all three locations is not a different type of plant altogether. Rather, the same sort of thing springs up in all three locations. Therefore, at first, in the first instance of growth, in the earliest stages of growth, you cannot meaningfully distinguish between the three cases of growth in the parable of the sower. So it is with new converts to the Christian faith. 
false conversions and false disciples may look the same at first as a genuine conversion and a genuine disciple. We recently transplanted some pittosporum bushes or shrubs or whatever. I'm not sure what the right classification is. But we, we recently transplanted some of these pittosporum, I'm going to call them bushes, from my parents-in-law's house to our house. And in hindsight, we didn't do it right. They started to look pretty unhealthy, and so I, I looked up on the internet about whether you could transplant them and how you're supposed to transplant them. And in hindsight, we didn't do it right. Apparently, we didn't dig deep enough and wide enough around the roots to leave a sufficiently large root ball attached to each plant. Consequently, the plants are currently in what I have learned is called transplant shock, and they may die. I suspect they will. However, the only way to really know for sure is to wait and see, because apparently the effects of transplant shock on that type of bush or shrub can last for up to a year. And so they might, they might look pretty rough for a while yet. So the only way to know for sure is to wait and see. Is there any life there? I am not a botanist by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Mel and I have a running joke between us. When I know little to nothing about a given subject, I say to my wife, I know as much about that as I know about botany. I am not an expert gardener by any means. But from what I understand, it would be premature to pronounce these pittosporum bushes dead just yet and dig them up after transplanting just because presently they're showing signs of ill health. Apparently that's common when, when plants are transplanted from one location to another. So we need to wait and see if there's life there. Eventually, either life or death will manifest itself. The plant will recover or the plant will die. So it is, so it is with a supposed new believer and their profession of faith. Either life or death will manifest itself sooner or later. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explained that many people will respond enthusiastically to the gospel. But the testing of life, the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, Jesus says, eventually suffocate the growth in some of those cases. Death and not life manifests itself. Though at first, these supposed new believers looked the same as the genuine article. They eventually prove themselves false. And what is the telltale sign of the spuriousness of their supposed conversion? They do not abide in Christ's word. In the passage we're looking at today, John 8, 30-32, Jesus teaches that if you abide in my word, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Over against those who at first enthusiastically receive Christ's word, but do not abide in it. <clears throat> A true disciple remains in Christ's word. A true disciple reads it regularly. A true disciple listens to it preached. A true disciple thinks about Christ's word. A true disciple applies it to his life. A true disciple is encouraged by it. A true disciple is rebuked and exhorted by Christ's word. A true disciple is shaped by Christ's word. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer includes a prayer that reads thus, Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, etc., etc., and on it goes. How the prayer finishes is not our concern, but that impulse to hear, read, Mark, learn, inwardly digest the word of Christ. This is the way that a true disciple longs to engage with the word. <clears throat> to pray that way from the heart is to pray as a genuine believer. For the desire of a genuine believer's heart is to hear, read, mark learn, and inwardly digest. When you suffer and someone quotes scripture to you, do you appreciate it? Or do you consider them a little naive and their advice a little superficial? As if the scripture can't really speak to your situation. When you sin and someone quotes scripture to you, do you appreciate it? Or do you write a brother or sister off as being overly zealous and somewhat sanctimonious for even trying to correct you with the scriptures as if the scriptures ought not to really and specifically be applied to you in real world cases. When you suffer or sin, when the cares of this life come up, when a time of testing comes, do you search the scripture yourself and abide in Christ's word? Or do you give up on Christ's word in the time of testing? When the cares of life come. If you are truly Christ's disciple, you will love and go on loving Christ's word, even in times of sin and suffering, when testing comes, when the cares of life come, you will abide in Christ's word. If you are truly Christ's disciple, you will heed and you will go on heeding Christ's word in times of sin and suffering. When testing comes, when the cares of this life come. If you are Christ's disciple, even then, you will heed and go on heeding 
Christ's word. And even when scripture may be misapplied to you by the brethren, we all know just because scripture in principle is helpful to us in our time of testing, whether in sin or suffering, it doesn't mean that everybody's application of it is equally good. And we all know that someone can come and heal a wound lightly, to use a biblical phrase, bringing what may truly be a trite application of scripture to bear on your suffering. Or someone may come with a misapplied exhortation or rebuke based on a faulty reading of scripture or a faulty assessment of the situation. So on but even when scripture may be misapplied to you by the brethren, if you are Christ's disciple, you will appreciate the impulse. You will respect the impulse of your brothers and sisters in Christ to bring to bear upon your life, your circumstances, the word of Christ. Because you will agree in principle that this is what I need right now. The word of Christ. And you'll seek yourself to bring scripture to bear upon your life and your circumstances in times of sin and suffering, even when the brethren fail to do it skillfully. You won't say, well, never mind the word of Christ then, and go somewhere else yourself. You might say, this brother or this sister has failed to skillfully apply this to me, but I know this is what I need, and so when they leave, I'm in the book. You don't leave or avoid the word of Christ if you are really, truly Christ's disciple. You persist in Christ's word in the midst of testing, in the midst of the cares of this life. And of course, you don't wander entirely away from God's word in the good times either. Amidst the riches and pleasures of life, if you are Christ's disciple, as if you needed God's word before when you were struggling, but now here you are. In Deuteronomy, we read the Lord indicting his Old Testament people, gesturing grew fat and kicked. To grow fat and kick. Amidst the riches and pleasures of life, to then throw off Christ's word is also a sign that you are not truly Christ's disciple. This is one of the senses of the word abide, remaining, persisting with Christ's word. The other sense is drawing sustenance from, being nourished by. The word abide is used in this way in that familiar passage in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What does he say? Abide in me. Jesus makes the comparison between himself as the vine and his people as the branches. The import of Jesus' metaphor in John 15 is that we draw sustenance from him and are nourished by him as the leaves of my epitosporum bushes must come to draw sustenance from their roots if they are to survive. So if we go back to John 8 with this use of the word abide in mind, 
Jesus is teaching here that we will draw sustenance from his word if we are truly his disciples. So I ask you, is the word of God sweeter to you than honey from the honeycomb, as the psalmist said? When you are hungry and growing faint and you need your eyes brightened, so to speak, as Jonathan needed some nourishment in the midst of the battle with the Philistines described in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Do you, like Jonathan, take your staff, as it were, and dip it in the honeycomb and take some nourishment from the Word of God that your eyes might be brightened? When a brother or sister brings up Scripture, in the course of ordinary conversation with you? Do you appreciate it and does it nourish you? Or do you scoff at the spirituality of your brother as if he is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good and needs more of a real world perspective? Do you mock and scoff even if only inwardly at this brother or sister that has their head in the clouds, so to speak? is here quoting scripture in the midst of real world problems and difficulties. Do you try to bring scripture with you to nourish you, to sustain you as a vine does the branches as you go about your daily activities in order that you might get your head in the clouds, in order that you might be a heavenly minded person, in order that you might be in the world but not of the world. When you have need of guidance or light or encouragement or whatever else, do you look to draw from God's word what you need as a leaf draws what it needs from the root system? Is the word of God really a provider of what you need to you? Is it to you, experientially, a lamp to your feet and a light to your path when you're confused and not sure what to do? Is it true, experientially, for you what is written in Romans 15 and verse 4, that through the scriptures we might have hope? Is that true experientially for you when the darkness closes in, the discouragement, the overwhelmingness of life closes in? Is it true for you? Can you say, yes, I will testify to that, that through the scriptures, in the midst of it all, we may have hope. I draw hope that I need from the scriptures. Do you look to be nourished by Christ's Word. This is the other sense of the word abide. So if you are truly Christ's disciple, you will remain in or you will remain with his word and will draw sustenance from it and be nourished by it. Not only does the branch stay connected to the vine and doesn't sever itself, but it's not also just statically sitting there and, and with nothing happening. It is drawing from the vine. Both must be true with respect to our relationship to Christ's word. We must remain with it and we must be drawing from it. 
Jesus says that if you are really his disciple, this will be descriptive of your relationship to his word. This is the first mark of true discipleship that Jesus gives us in our passage today. John 8, 30-32. The second is this. A true disciple will be progressively set free from sin by the truth of Christ's word. Notice that Jesus does not say in the past tense, if you are truly my disciples, you have come to know the truth, and the truth has set you free. Rather, Jesus says in the future tense, if you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, of course, there is a sense in which true disciples have already, past tense, come to know the truth. And there is a sense in which, past tense, the truth has set us free. For example, in his first epistle, the same author, the Apostle John, says, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. As believers, we already know the truth, as John 3.16 says, that the Father loves us and has sent his Son into this world for us, so that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We already know that truth. We have already come to know the truth that Jesus lived and died and rose for our salvation. We have already come to know the truth that Jesus' sinless life is all the righteousness that I need. We have already come to know the truth that Jesus' death is all the atonement I need. And I don't need to add to it myself. We already know the truth that death cannot make a legal case for keeping me six feet under we already know the truth that as Jesus rose, so shall I rise. And in the words of John Newton, then, free, free, free. I am from sin set free. I have been, right? Past tense. This world now has no charms for me, for Christ has set me free. Or in the words of a more modern chorus, free, free, free. I have been set free. I have met a man, a man from Galilee. He took away my load, my heavy load of sin. And now I'm shouting glory. Hallelujah. There is a sense in which we have, past tense, come to know the truth. And we have, past tense, being set free. Glory, hallelujah. But this is not the sense in which Jesus is speaking in John chapter 8 and verse 32. He's not speaking of having come to know the truths pertaining to justification and believing them and getting free from the guilt of sin. Rather, Jesus is speaking here about the progressive growth in knowledge that happens in a Christian's life over time. You will, Christian, increasingly come to know the truth. 
And Jesus is speaking about the way that that progressive growth in knowledge translates in getting freer, into getting freer and freer from the day-to-day -day slavery to sin that you are in some sense in. Now it should be clarified that sin actually has no dominion over true disciples. Jesus has already broken sin's power over us. Romans 6 and verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so there is this breaking of sin's power over us, which has already happened. So Christian, you are no longer objectively a slave to sin. You don't have to sin, Christian. However, that truth doesn't mean that you never act like a slave. Romans 6, 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so there's this objective, Jesus has broken the power of sin, but there's also this subjective, which is day by day, sometimes we act as if we're still slaves. And so Romans 6, 11, in between these two realities, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. There is thinking that needs to happen to connect what Jesus has done with our day-to-day -day battle against sin. There is a considering, a thinking that needs to happen in order to appropriate what Jesus has done so that we no longer present ourselves as slaves to sin. It is this considering and realizing and appropriating that Jesus has in view in John 8, 32, when he says, you will, future, know the truth. And the truth will, future, set you free. There is a process of learning the truth about Jesus and his gospel and ourselves and our relationship to God and the world we live in and the remaining corruption that we experience and the new life in Christ that we are to walk in and everything else that the Bible teaches and touches on, there is a process of coming into the fullness of that. Christian, you will increasingly come into the fullness of that and in that sense you will know the truth. And as you do, the truth will set you free so that you no longer continue in the same patterns of sin year after year, unabated, <coughs> undiminished, unchanged, perpetually stuck. As you come to know the truth, truth increasingly sets you free.
you begin to consider, as Romans 6, 11 says, you begin to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And you understand more and more what that means. And you understand more and more how to live this new life and how to stop presenting yourself as a slave to sin. You will, Christian. This is actually an encouraging promise for us in our battle against sin. What should I expect this week? What should you expect this week? Christian, you should expect that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is what Jesus is saying in this passage. That's what happens with true disciples. As their lives go on, they will know the truth more and more. And the truth will set them free more and more. The true disciple is marked by an abiding in Christ's word and a progress in the knowledge of Christ's word and a getting increasingly free from sin as he applies Christ's word to himself over time. Are you presenting yourself less and less to sin as an obedient slave? I ask every one of you in this room, are you presenting yourself less and less to sin as an obedient slave in the words of Romans 6.16? Are you realizing more and more and are you appropriating more and more of the freedom from sin that Christ won for you such that you're increasingly walking in newness of life? We all sin. 1 John 1 is crystal clear about that. Being a true disciple of Jesus, truly being one of his disciples, does not mean that you're sinless. But being a true disciple of Christ does mean that you will sin less. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. William Ames said, we discern the growth of grace as the growth of plants, which we perceive rather to have grown than to grow, which means in simpler, more modern English, as he said that 500 years ago, you can't see plants growing in real time. You can't set up a lawn chair and get a little bit of shade over you and sit there for an afternoon and observe a plant grow. It doesn't work like that. It's imperceptible in the moment. But after a while, it's clear whether or not plants have grown. So it is with our growth in grace, William Ames says. You can't look at someone, whether yourself or someone else and tell whether they are more sanctified today than last Tuesday. It just doesn't work like that. You don't watch yourself or look at someone else in the short term and see he's growing in grace, she's growing in grace. Trying to observe sanctification in real time is futile, just as observing the growth of plants in real time is futile. 
give it enough time and you will see whether or not someone has grown in grace. As I watch my pittosporum plants to see whether life or death will eventually manifest itself, so we may watch one another. And so we must examine ourselves. Is life manifesting itself by a growth in the knowledge of the truth? And growth in experiential freedom from sin? Or are there no signs of growth and therefore no signs of life? As the parable of the sower indicates, true conversion and false conversion may look the same for a season. Therefore, a false disciple may for a time be indistinguishable from a true disciple. But Jesus here in this passage gives us two marks of true discipleship. A true disciple abides in God's word and is progressively set free from sin by the truth contained in Christ's word. May we examine ourselves carefully then and watch also over one another's souls, not as prison guards ready to shoot someone who is out of line, but as loving gardeners trying to figure out how do we nourish and cultivate our garden? Would we encourage amongst ourselves here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church steadfast persistence in the word of Christ? And would we expect to see the fruit of freedom from sin born among us as together we increasingly, as the years and decades roll by, come to know the truth increasingly. Let's sing in response a prayer of petition for the sanctifying work of God in our lives, setting us increasingly free from sin by the power of his word and spirit. O oh, great God, number 35 in Hymns of Grace. <laughs>